2: It is time for Bloomberg Opinion and I'm excited now to welcome our next guest, Admiral James Stavridis, retired Navy Admiral, former military commando of NATO and of course Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Admiral, what is the thing that most keeps you up at night right now? I mean, there's a a, a plethora, a smorgasbord, if you like, of things that I'm sure uh, bother you and questions that you're trying to answer. But the particular one right now, as we are, what, three weeks out from the election?
3: Uh, First and foremost, it's the distinct possibility of real turbulence domestically here in the United States after the election. And uh, let's hope for a a clean win on uh, election eve, but I think that's unlikely. And therefore, there'll be court challenges. And so what worries me, Bonnie, and keeps me awake at night at the moment in the things I worry about in the international sphere is that an opponent might take advantage of this period of Weeks or even months of turbulence. I think it will resolve by inauguration day, one way or the other. But you could see China making a move on Taiwan. You could see Iran doing something in the Arabian Gulf. You could see North Korea rattle a saber as they did just a couple of days ago, rolling out a new ICBM. So that sense of potential turbulence in the near term is the first thing I worry about. And the second one, less obvious, is cyber. Um, We have moved so many things into the cyber world, Bonnie, I am concerned that our opponents might take advantage of that. And if you merge those two things together, concern about cyber and that turbulence after the election, I think we're headed into a period of vulnerability. That's what keeps me awake at night right now.
2: Why wouldn't those opponents take advantage, Admiral? Can you give us reasons why it would not be in their interest to do that?
3: Uh, Because long term, uh, the United States will come out of this period uh, capable, ready to respond. We have the most capable military in the world, so we have military deterrence. We still have the strongest economy in the world. It will come out somewhat battered, as I don't need to tell a Bloomberg columnist. uh, And China is having a better, swifter recovery But I wouldn't bet against the United States in the long term. So I think our opponents are smart enough, I hope, to realize that we have the military capability, we have the economic cap. And lastly, we have that network of allies, partners and friends around the world. I think it would be foolish for China to make a move. I think it would be a mistake for Iran to do so or Russia. But you still have to account for and pay attention to that possibility.
2: What's the apparatus that's already up and running that these countries would have to tamp down in order to sort of comply with international accepted practices pre-election? I mean, we already know that China and Russia have huge troll farms and, you know, a huge apparatus basically designed to interfere in any election all over the world, should they wish to. Is there any evidence to suggest that they might tamp that down?
3: I don't think so, um, because at the end of the day, there's this sort of sense that oh, the Russians and the Chinese are working to re-elect Donald Trump. I don't think that's quite right. I think what the Russians and the Chinese are doing is to try and create real divisions in American society, and they will do that, as you say, using social media primarily, uh, but also using actual incidents. I think as we get closer uh, to the election, I could foresee, for example, uh, a false flag operation where hundreds of ballots are suddenly discovered in a dumpster. It's entirely possible a physical act like that could be undertaken by our opponents, as well as all the social network problems that you've just addressed. And no, there are no international sanctions that can be applied uniformly. That's why it's important that the United States send clear signals To these nations that we will respond uh, in the moment, we'll defend better, and we will also respond potentially after the election uh, when we sort out what has happened and then take action in the cyber world against those who have attacked us.
2: Now, Admiral Stavridis, you have a great column out on the Bloomberg Today. COVID commission is crucial for U.S. recovery. You say an investigation of the pandemic should include scientists, doctors, and—gasp—a big pharma executive. Explain <laughs> to us, you know, who might put this together, given that we're not quite sure who will be leading the country. There's a lame duck session at some point, and then there'll be, you know, either an, another four years with President Trump or four years with President Biden. So, what? How would this work? Well, let's look at
3: history. Um, After Pearl Harbor, where 2,300 Americans shockingly died on December 7th, there was a national commission set up by the Congress. After the 9-11 events, where 3,000 Americans died, there was a national commission set up by the Congress. I think we're going to see the same thing. We're now at 215,000 Americans dead probably by inauguration, will be north of 300,000, most observers think. So there has to be accountability. We have to look back and see how did this happen, just like we did at Pearl Harbor, just like we did at 9-11. And more importantly, we've got to look forward so that it never happens again. What are the practical things we need to do to prepare ourselves for this? So how it would happen, and I think this will happen, Whoever is in office after January 20th, 2021, uh, will be a congressional push because all of us, all of us who are American citizens ought to demand that our national government focus on this. And the Congress is very well equipped with the tools to do this. They could appoint two leaders to set it up. You pick about a dozen commissioners. I lay out in the article uh, some ideas for what it would look like. And you give them, you know, this won't be instant work. You give them about two years uh, to put this together. The Pearl Harbor Commission took five. 9-11 took three. I think we can do this in two years. It'll be perhaps the most significant such commission in American history. Yeah. You've got to do it.
2: All right. Well, I imagine it's coming at some point, And our thanks to you. It's a must read today. COVID Commission Crucial for U.S. Recovery. Retired Admiral James Stavridis, former NATO military commander. It is time now to have a look at big tech. Of course, big tech has been dominating markets, basically, even if it hasn't been dominating casual conversation outside of markets. But certainly, that might start to change once we start to get Congress looking into the regulation of big tech. Let's bring in Mark Douglas, who is CEO of Steelhouse. He is currently in Istanbul, but he is based generally in S in LA, so... Mark, thank you so much for joining. First of all, talk to us about uh, Istanbul. What's it like at the moment?
1: Um, it's bustling. It's a, it's a, the weather's great. And there are a ton of people on the street. Everyone's wearing masks. And the city um, feels great. I've been traveling all over the world during COVID. So that I got here two days ago.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing how the Eastern European countries are, are treating this slightly differently from some of the rest of the countries in the world. And, uh, you know, Turkey would be sort of a little bit in that group. So talk to us about yeah. regulating big tech and what you anticipate we'll see over the next few days, two weeks in Congress. I mean, we're in a sort of strange period where, you know, senators are up for re-election. We're obviously re-electing a president or electing a president. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Is it the best time to be doing this?
1: Well, I think the the reasons they're doing it are legitimate. I mean the, these large companies, Apple, Amazon, um, Google and Facebook, and maybe even a few others they they legitimately do have monopoly power. I think Apple is kind of trying to fly a bit under the radar, but um, they have probably the biggest monopoly, which is the app store and the thirty percent fee that they charge and a complete monopoly on getting apps onto your iOS devices. But I think all these companies are vulnerable and I think it's it's legitimate to kind of investigate them and try to find solutions that ultimately create more competition and, and are better for consumers in the long term.
2: Who's most at risk of having to change what they're doing so maybe you know breaking off a piece or you know spinning off a piece?
1: Yeah, I think Apple is. So when you look at someone like Amazon and Google, I think the big complaints are mainly about their search results. Amazon, when you go shopping and Google, obviously with Google search, but Apple's entire business model that them breaking the $2 trillion mark in market cap is essentially based on them having a complete monopoly on um, what gets on your onto your iPhone and and the things they charge. And if if the US kind of um, the US government kind of interferes with that and it's going to take some time i think that kind of really starts to disrupt the the, the heart of their business model which was has been driving their market cap they'll obviously survive they may have to charge lower fees, but that – and you look at bundles they're introducing, like Apple One, the Apple One bundle, which is basically, you know, whether you watch it, read it, listen to it, you, they, they, um, or, or you know, now Apple Fitness is part of that bundle, like that could potentially get attacked also by the U.S. government. So, so they are, I think, the most vulnerable.
2: What's in it for the senators? I mean, don't all senators want to keep big tech on side in some
1: way? Well, I mean, the it's a big driver for the U.S. economy. So on the one hand, you want to keep um, these big companies who are, create a lot of jobs and generate um, a lot. You want to essentially you don't want to really harm them and allow um, competition from outside the United States um, if you're kind of like a pro you know, America first type type senator. But I mean, it's it's legitimate concerns. I think ultimately tech is an easy target. Everyone. It's a like do nothing right type environment right now, especially with the topic of censorship and what should be allowed on social media, talking about Facebook and Instagram and what shouldn't be allowed. So, you know, with that big a topic, that big a target and. A lot of people being kind of angry at social media, I mean, it's easy to to join that bandwagon and and try to leverage it to create a kind of populist sentiment towards your candidacy. I
2: mean, you sort of get the impression that no matter what happens, these stocks are going to keep going higher anyway. Um, Nothing has dented them up to now. What's your sense of where they go when I'm talking about basically Apple and Alphabet, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think, well, I think Amazon is by far the the biggest, Apple used to be the biggest innovator. Um, I think people think of Apple as an innovator now, but the last real product they introduced that would, had any level of success was the Apple Watch in 2014. Now it's just cycles of evolution rather than you know something really innovative but um amazon continues to be the big innovator with um the the success they've had with the echo and a lot of the acquisitions that they've done so i think um i i I think ultimately amazon is you know kind of retakes a top spot as the most valuable company and the others are playing catch-up google is kind of being attacked from all sides, um, again, by Amazon in terms of Amazon's ad business. Um, the search business is obviously, like, they, they've, they have no competition basically worldwide except for China with their search business. So I, I think, um, I don't think they will, they're not as vulnerable as, as someone like Apple is, and maybe to a lesser extent Amazon
2: Speaking of Apple, we have, of course, a big event tomorrow. Um, there's a lot going on tomorrow, including some Amy Coney Barrett hearings on the Hill. But at the same time, a lot of people will be looking at Apple's launch and we're meant to get some more phones. What do you think is going to happen, Mark? What have you heard and, and will people upgrade?
1: Yeah, so the Apple 12 is the big announcement. I think there's no secret on that. The Probably the most innovative thing coming out of the Apple 12 announcement is the strong rumors that there's gonna be a new Apple Mini, and which will bring the price point down to essentially half. Remember when Apple introduced the Apple X, everyone was complaining about how expensive it was. I mean, the phone costs more than like Apple's low-end computer. And so now they're introducing a phone at half the price point. And what's really interesting about that I think really key to watch is Apple is a lot of their profit is increasingly coming from their services, and so the Apple One bundle on an Apple Mini, I think, the Apple wants a subscription from every household, essentially in the world, and so they are bringing down the price point to their products in order to get to to encourage more people to to get an Apple One subscription, and also with Apple Fitness Plus which hasn't been launched yet. I mean, they're now going after Peloton and other fitness companies. So it's all about that kind of ongoing revenue stream after you buy the device. So it's a really smart move to bring low, low-priced iPhone, current model low-priced iPhone, and then essentially make hundreds of dollars a year more in the, the monthly subscription fees that you're gonna pay for, for all forms of entertainment and fitness that, that, uh, that they want you to pay.
2: Briefly, Mark, we're out of time, but is it a wild success even in pandemic times?
1: Say that question one more time, I couldn't hear Do you. Do
2: people buy it even when cash is low in pandemic times?
1: Um, I don't think the, I think these Apple 12s are a bit of a dud. I mean, they're introducing 5G, but I, essentially a lot of people seem to be, the, poll, the, the um, polling is saying that people want to buy them, so I guess they're going to be successful.
2: All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Mark Douglas is CEO of Steelhouse. Let's see tomorrow what actually emerges from that Apple event. But well, We appreciate Mark's time today. All right, it is time now to get to one of our old chestnuts. Bill Smead, always love having you on the program. Bill Smead is CEO and CIO of Smead Capital Management. And Bill, I'm sure you have varying opinions on everything that's happening this week, having been in the market so long. What is the one thing that markets will concentrate on this week?
4: Well, thanks for having us, Bonnie. Sure. Uh, The the markets are concentrating on... uh, what I call COVID misery investments, and they are exacerbating a trend of uh, concentrating capital in the vast monopoly uh, uh, companies. And they, there just doesn't seem to be any end to the, the urge on the part of investors to uh, extrapolate what is going on far out into the future.
2: So, Bill, I mean, I know that you invest slightly differently to sort of watching the day-to-day news headlines anyway, as do, honestly, you know, most investors for the long haul. But at the same time, you have to wonder which of these macro events could really change the dynamic in the market. Is there one out there?
4: Well, actually, what, what happens is below the surface, uh, economics actually do change. So, for example, you would expect stock prices to peak at the point where the prospects for the industry appear to people to be the most favorable. And with all of people being afraid of catching COVID and kind of uh, self-quarantining, the reliance on the large tech companies will probably never be higher, I would guess, than at this moment in time. So it only makes sense that those stocks are very high right now because the prospects for their profits Due to the current circumstances, but at the same time that's going on uh, it, it it also lays the groundwork for superior economics in other areas where the stock prices are extremely low and that's our job is to is to figure out where economics are very favorable and then uh, and then adjust appropriately.
2: So Bill, have you making any adjustments?
4: We are, and it's just painful, Bonnie. Uh. we are tacking away from investments that we've made in the last three to 10 years that are becoming too popular because of how popular growth stocks are. We're taking money from there and applying it to favorable economics in places like energy and places like uh, uh, real estate. And, and by the way, that's the two worst performing sectors today, just so you know. And, and uh, so I'll give you one example. It it was announced that uh, Warren Buffett's Lieutenant Ted Wessler now owns almost 6% of Dillard's department stores. And the stock has soared today 30 or 40%. Uh, well, we own two companies that are landlords to Dillard's. So if he if he likes Dillard's, he'd probably like the landlords, and that would be Simon Properties and Mace Rich. Just in the Phoenix Valley where I am, there are seven Dillard's stores at seven separate Mace Rich properties. And uh, I counted, I think, simon has 17 dillard stores so while they're really excited about dillard's they despise their landlords and i would suggest that the two should go in tandem
2: well explain that to me because i've just been looking at mass and simon property group and obviously the stocks you know plummeted in march and they haven't really recovered since and i think the question is okay so Dillard's might be okay, and Dillard's might be able to pay its rent, but what about all of the other tenants? Why are you still bullish on these real estate companies?
4: Well, first of all, they are very close to uh, most American population. And so there's two possibilities here. One is that two or three years from now, the the virus is gone. Uh, Vaccinations are in force, and cures for whoever had it uh, have come to pass. And then people go back to something, uh, that's a new normal, but, but m- closer to what the way we used to live. And under that environment, these people own very attractive property in some of the most attractive, uh, places in the United States, uh, Florida, Texas, California, Arizona, that that's where people are moving, uh, to the Sun Belt, And, and that's, that's where they own a lot of properties. And uh, so, so the answer is uh, this idea that we're all just going to huddle in our house and do nothing for the next five years and spend all of our money and never leave the house and spend all of our time on, on uh, electronic devices and be antisocial. I just think it's, it's, it's highly unlikely. It, it's worth making some investments with very high reward potential that, that the risk has been taken out by depressed prices.
2: All right, Bill, thank you so much. Bill Smead is CEO and CIO of Smead Capital Management. And Bill, they're talking about some of the real estate companies. And it's really interesting to hear the different opinions on, on this, because, of course, you'll get those that say malls are dead and you'll get those that say, no, I mean, they might be in a little bit of a lull period. But at some point, we'll have to get back to something akin to the life that we had
0: been living.
2: Right, and this portion of Bloomberg Markets now concentrating on big tech and breakup potentially in the future. Let's bring in Stephen Strauss, who joins us from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, where he is a visiting professor. Stephen, you know, Europe sort of ahead of the game on this, but the U.S. is a little more let's say, wide-reaching, I mean, the U.S. could actually mandate for these companies to start breaking themselves apart. Do you see that even potentially happening?
5: Uh, it's going to be a long road, um, if, it, if history is any guide. Uh, I looked up some of the numbers. Uh, breaking up Standard Oil was about a 20-year process. The IBM antitrust litigation went 13 years. The AT&T antitrust litigation went about 10 years. And Microsoft antitrust went about 10 years. And particularly in the technology sector, it's not standing still. I mean, there have been some rueful jokes that by the time, particularly the Microsoft and IBM cases were settled, the original basis for the cases were essentially irrelevant.
2: That's actually quite stunning. I mean, that's really, really stunning. Is that a testament to the ability of these companies to put up a defense, an argument for how they should be, how they are? And if that's the case, are we looking at something similar?
5: Um It's certainly a comment on, you know, these companies can afford the best lawyers in the world. Um, You know, the American legal system has many virtues. Speed is not necessarily among them. So, I mean, think about the process. First, there's the trial in the court. Whoever loses will appeal it. Then there's another round of appeals. I mean, it just, it can go on for a very long time. Again, past performance is not necessarily a predictor of future results. But looking at the historical record, and it was a side point, there's a general feeling that to really take on these companies, there may need some changes to the legislation. So that's going to have to get through Congress.
2: Okay. When you say the legislation, what legislation exactly are we talking about?
5: Well, the antitrust legislation we currently have on the books, you know, originally dates to the 19th century. It was last updated during the 1970s. Uh, So, for example, one of the things uh, that the House is suggesting is rewriting the antitrust law so that if they're unfairly treating their suppliers, if they're kind of crushing their suppliers, it will be easier to take action against them. Most of antitrust at this point is oriented towards our consumers being hurt, whereas the issue with Amazon, for example, is there's a strong argument that what it's doing is harming its suppliers. Um, You know, so for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, they'd like to change the law so uh, Facebook, other companies, can't buy um, without proving that doing so will enhance competition and help consumers. You know, so there's certainly possibility of action under existing law. I mean, Google's market share in search is something like 90%, which, and, uh, which certainly presents an antitrust issue. And indeed, rumor mill, I think more than rumor mill at this point, the Department of Justice is, look, Justice is looking at initiating an uh, antitrust action against Google.
2: Yeah, I mean, these companies, do they have a plan B in case they're forced, or are they just, you know, do they have that little humility that they're not even thinking that they might be forced?
5: <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. I mean, its hey, I shouldn't say smart move. One maneuver on their part might be thinking about, look, we don't want 10 years of litigation. Is there something relatively straightforward we can do? But honestly, from their point of view, given that, you know, I'm assuming their lawyers are pointing out to them that litigation is a process. There's going to be years before any of this settles. I'm not sure I would be making any major plans to split up. Um, They might be making plans to be better, nicer competitors. While you're in litigation, probably the last thing you want to be be seen doing is something that's viewed as anti-competitive. Uh, people tend to forget Microsoft partially got its big start because IBM was in the middle of antitrust litigation and wanted to be being seen as being friendly to a smaller software company.
2: Mm. Are there any precedents here when it comes to, you know, the law?
5: Well, I mean, in what sense do you mean precedents? I mean, we certainly broken Have up. Have we ever
2: broken up before. a big company before successfully and permanently? Um,
5: well, Standard Oil was broken up. AT&T was split into seven companies. Microsoft, not Microsoft, I'm sorry, IBM was forced to spin off some subsidiaries. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been done. Uh, as a side point, it's not necessarily bad for the companies. Uh, there's at least some argument that uh, hmm. the antitrust litigation forced them to rethink their business models. and They may become more lucrative after the fact.
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose Amazon is is, uh, the one that most people interact with most. I mean, obviously, Apple, for those who, you know, can afford to use the Apple uh, ecosphere, if you like. But, um, you know, you could imagine a world in which Amazon splits up and each part of it is is totally viable and successful on its own. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, you could think of Amazon being split off cloud computing you can make an argument, really has nothing to do with the retail operation anyway. Mm. Uh, Split up the retail operation into vertical silos, the fulfillment centers, the retail front end. Uh, There are lots of ways to think about splitting these companies up. But I mean, the reality is it's going to be years of litigation before anyone gets the, to that point.
2: And the other reality is, it's what, I mean, it's, it's the intention, right? So you split them up in order for there to be more choice and for all companies to be better actors because they have you know peers in their group and they're sort of forced to be better actors for their consumers. But mm-hmm. that won't necessarily happen, even if these companies are split up, will it?
5: No. I mean, you know, I, there are certain things you might expect if you split them up, probably more intense competition. Uh, I mean, the amount of profits that, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, make are quite impressive. And it's hard to justify those profits in any other way except that they're quasi-monopolies. Uh, so one issue might be, you know, they have to compete more on price. Uh, they have to think about different models. Um, I mean, again, uh, to some extent, to Google, you are the product or I am the product. And mm-hmm. similarly for Facebook, they take our data for free if they're in a more intense competition situation, they might actually have to think about, well, how do we pay people for data?
2: Fascinating, my gosh, yeah. Well, I'm certainly glad that I haven't given it away all, all, all of it already then, because there is still something left to buy. <laughs> Our thanks to you very much, Stephen Strauss, for joining us there, and we do hope you'll come back and, and take us through this process, because no doubt some of it will be easy to understand, but there'll be a lot of it that won't be easy to understand for the layman. Stephen Strauss is visiting professor at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, joining us there. Do continue to listen to Bloomberg Markets throughout the afternoon. You'll be taken through all of the Columbus Day news, if you like. Uh, Bloomberg Business Week taking place a little bit later on. My co-host, Paul Sweeney, is on that show this week and next week. uh, Bloomberg Business Week filling in in the afternoons on Bloomberg Radio.